This week on Political Research Digest, interpreting the 2018 elections. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. On this special edition, we review the implications of the 2018 midterms. I'm joined by two political scientists who both followed it closely and know how it compares to other cycles. Julia Azari of Marquette University is the author of Delivering the People's Message about how politicians claim electoral mandates for action based on the results of elections. We talk about early interpretations of 2018 as a referendum on Trump and why we simplify election results with stories. Rachel Bittekoffer of the Wasson Center at Christopher Newport University is the author of The Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election and was a forecaster of the 2018 election. We talk about why negative partisanship makes election results easier easier to foresee as partisans choose clear sides but shift turnout. So what did we learn from the 2018 midterms? Azari says it's difficult to have a big swing when partisans are so dug in to their side. What we learned, number one, identity is on the ballot, but not always how you think. And the other one is that this is a this was an election of national sorting, but again, not in a completely simple or straightforward way where we saw We saw things happen that kind of consolidated the major geographical and partisan divisions within the country and told us more about what those are. So those are the the major takeaways for me. And I've been thinking a lot, and I put this question to my students yesterday, what does a change election mean in a divided, divided country? Is that even possible? Was this a change election? Was it not? I think that that's, to some degree, an open question. Those are the, the big things that I'm looking at. She says the early interpretations this year have focused on looking ahead to 2020. I've been tracking this closely, and I've been trying to think about how to compare this with with previous midterms in in terms of the volume of interpretation and in terms of the immediate translation from Tuesday's results, last Tuesday's results, into some kind of story about what the Democrats should do in 2020. It seems to me like the 2020 campaign is looming even larger over this than 2012 did over, you know, over Obama after the 2010 midterm or other previous elections like that. The interpretations I'm seeing, I've seen a lot of interpretations about the degree to which this was a referendum on Trump. And I think this is really interesting because that is not, if you were to just look at the the data, you wouldn't really need a referendum on Trump, right? You just look at raw data and you say, okay, here's a president who was elected in a surprising election, but lost the popular vote. He's been remarkably unpopular given the state of the economy. He was unpopular as a candidate. His um, uh, opponent was unpopular too. And it's entirely possible she'd be unpopular if she were the president. But you kind of look at all of that. You look at the response to some of the administration's top line policies, which have particularly in, in the area of immigration, I think it's been especially interesting because they've lost even some high profile Republicans. And you say, okay, let's let's have a referendum on this president and it'll come out and it'll be kind of split. That doesn't actually make any sense, right? You don't really need a referendum on Trump. You have a lot of different pieces of data that tell you this is a president who is divisive. This is a president who's unpopular. This is a president 
when I say divisive, I mean, not just that his behavior can be divisive, but that this is someone who's polarizing, right? Some people feel very strongly in favor, Republicans overwhelmingly favor Democrats. I think his approval among Democrats has been in the single digits since September. You know, you don't really need, you don't really need an election to like read the tea leaves and tell you where the nation is. Azari's book, Delivering the People's Message, focuses on how presidents claim mandates in a polarized era. When presidents have been in a situation where they've tried to expand their power into new new realms, they've tried to push at the boundaries of their power, they've often drawn on the concept of a presidential mandate to do so. And this goes back into the 1830s and even before. So it's in that sense, it's sort of very distinctly, it's developed as a very distinctly presidential concept because that's something presidents have have done. And particularly, I, I note that in the low in the post Watergate era, presidents are kind of always in that moment of pushing at the boundaries of their power because there's always someone pushing back at the very legitimacy of executive power and the and the concept of expansive modern executive power is kind of always politically contested. And one way for presidents to respond to that is to say, "Well, I am doing what I was elected to do." And what's exacerbated that is the polarization of that of that same era. And one of the things I found in my book in the very so my book came out in 2014, I sent, you know, my final my final stuff in in 2013, but didn't include Obama's second term. So Obama's first term is my last is my last case. But Obama and George W. Bush in his second term really demonstrate a turning point in how much they rely on this kind of rhetoric, just in sheer as a sheer proportion of the number of speeches that they give and messages that they issue. They make reference to the election, to the rejection of our opponents, to following our campaign promises, and that's one of several pivotal turning points in the ways that presidents use elections to bolster what they do. And that's at the time at a time when the country's becoming hyperpolarized. Donald Trump has been unabashed and repeatedly claiming a mandate. He talks quite frequently about how about his election victory, about how he won the electoral college, you know, what he ran on. One of the things that I found when I started looking more closely at things like the radio addresses that is that actually he used a lot of mandate rhetoric that's pretty toned down relative to what he says on Twitter. But that's actually it's a it's a high volume of what we would see from other presidents, which is like I am responding to the people who elected me. I'm responding to my campaign promise. He'd especially trot this out talking about immigration. So Trump really fits the pattern in some ways. This is you know I don't know how many other social scientists have run into this problem where you publish a book and then your best case happens two years after you write the book. The you know most interesting and most illustrative of the dynamics that you're talking about. And some of that is is compensating for legitimacy challenges. And there I think I think it is fair to say that that Trump has faced a lot of pushback from members of the media. He's you know, he's unpopular, which is something else I found to be correlated with mandate claims. That's real. I and mean, the defensiveness that his rhetoric displays is in response to a real, you know, real challenges. Using mandate rhetoric in that defensive posture is very much predicted by by the decades of presidential rhetoric that come before. And his first take on 2018 was decidedly self-centered. But Azari says it does have some precedent. The people I campaigned for, the whole the line about Mia Love didn't want any love, like that's that's not standard presidential discourse. Usually these ego moments come out, you know, they come out in maybe in private exchanges. They don't make their way into the first press conference. I will say 
you know, it's true. Obama talked about the shellacking in 2010. I also have a paper with with Justin Vaughn. It's, it's floating around. It got accepted somewhere. And I, I don't think it, I think it's somewhere in the publication backlog where we looked at Obama's rhetoric after 2014. And his rhetoric after 2014 was not totally in the shellacking vein. He did say things like, look, we were still like the 2012 election still counts. So it's not unusual for presidents to be to have a bad midterm and to say and to say something along those lines, you know, the, the the, the presidential election still counts. I'm still president. We're going to work together. I think if I'm remembering right, Clinton said things after 94 that were very much like the message we have is, is against gridlock. What, what this was was a rejection of gridlock, not a rejection of me but a rejection of of the overall you know problematic nature of of partisanship and so what this really is is a is a call for bipartisanship and so you know i mean rhetoric is rhetoric right a lot of that is trying to polish uh, i won't use a crude expression about what we might be polishing after a midterm election but you know trying to polish a pretty bad result and that's you know on the one hand relatively transparent and on the other hand what are presidents going to say they're not wrong they're still president the previous election still counts but i will say that you know, while Trump's kind of personally immodest rhetoric is is new, it's not uncommon for presidents to push back a little bit on on that kind of interpretation of a of a midterm that this was just a total rejection of what they stood for. Usually the collective interpretation of an election takes a while to form, but coalesces by the spring following it. The stories often are sort of there's a whole bunch of stories immediately after an election. And then they narrow into into one clearer narrative. I found so what I found was that presidents typically stop talking about their elections somewhere between April and June. The logic of the thing moved on, right? That they had typically at that point they had pushed the agenda items they wanted to push early on. Sometimes it was successful. Sometimes it wasn't. Going into that summer, that first summer of being president, right, you know, outside the first hundred days, that becomes a kind of different political environment. The president's relationship with Congress is starting to take shape. New events have happened. And so the political the political conversation has kind of shifted and moved on. That's obviously been less true with with Trump. I mean, one of the things that I kind of noticed about him was he kept talking about his election victory well into 2017 and 2018. Midterm interpretations are sometimes less clear and can evolve based on the president's later performance. In 2006, 2014, and 1994 are an interesting group of elections to compare if we're going to look at recent midterms. On the one hand, 94, so 94 is another one that other mandate scholars talk about. It was unexpected. And it also had a kind of clear national, it was really in some ways like the first truly nationalized congressional election where Newt Gingrich had was the sort of you know for lack of a better was sort of congressional ringleader of the conservative movement in the house and you had the contract with america you had some clear policy agenda it's like okay what is this about it's about this and so it was just made for a narrative 2006 i think though was not less clear in the policy issue that it was about 2006 was very much about the turn in public opinion in in the war on iraq and that was, and you can see that in the way that Bush even responded to it. You know, it's at points defensive and at points making, making actual changes. But I think that was sort of clearly the, clearly the issue. Um, Twenty fourteen, maybe not. You know, not as as clear what the what the issue was. Um, but the other difference is that you kind of need you need more of an explanation when it's an earlier midterm. 
as the presidency goes on, if that president gets reelected, um, you kind of you kind of need a story about what that means. And to some degree, you know, six, it was like, OK, this is a repudiation of the Iraq war. But at this point, Bush is only going to be in office for two more years. And that's the same thing with 2014. I could really feel the end of Obama's presidency coming about when he gave his State of the Union address in 2015 and essentially went back to all of these promises he'd made in, in his inaugural and even in his 2004 DNC speech about finding common ground. And he kind of said, well, maybe we can't find common ground on that. But maybe we can at least agree on this other thing. And you kind of feel these presidencies winding down. In 2018, we're immediately asking if it's a wave election with unclear definitions. A wave election is really an interesting phrase. It dates back earlier than this, but I remember it being used a lot in, in 2014. And to some degree, here's what I think about a wave. It's sort of similar to a mandate. If you have to ask, it probably wasn't. But the most common definition, let's talk about what's fairly obvious in front of us. The most common definition, I think, of the wave is that Democrats or Republicans, whoever, did well in areas you wouldn't expect. And, you know, did well in places where they, they they wouldn't normally have business doing well. That's a tall order in a divided country. And it also fails to take into account the, the highly varied and dynamic nature of partisan trends. Azari says elections often feature blunt demographic interpretations, like this year's focus on suburban educated women. Leading up to 1996, I recently had to explain this to my undergraduates because they had never heard the phrase soccer mom and they thought I was out of my mind. But in 1996, you couldn't hear, you know, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing about soccer moms. It was never clear if that was really a thing. We probably will hear about that. And I think demographic interpretations of elections are, you know, are, are likely to be an emerging part of this story. This is, I think, dangerous because election narratives tend to be pretty blunt. And you do see, you know, you do see some election narratives on the losing side in the 70s and 80s from Democrats that essentially are about, you know, we focus too much on, quote, unquote, special groups, uh, beating women and minorities, and not enough on, you know, ordinary Americans It kind of, you know, you kind of see echoes of in 2016. And I, I think that that's, you know, election narratives as their cast are very bad at dealing with the complexity of the way that people's identities intersect. So we've got, you know, women as a group, but women have different educational levels, they have different racial identities, they have different geographical bases. You know, that's, that's kind of I think dangerous, particularly when you have a situation in which you have a growing non-white population, but still a majority white population. You, know, you have to really be careful about how you talk about constructing majorities. And so that's something I would encourage people as, as they're kind of spinning out election narratives is to, is to be a little bit nuanced about that kind of complexity and be careful about how you use words like ordinary or special groups. But this year's elections did not have obvious policy implications. There is research that shows that, you know, people do, uh, politicians do what they say they're going to do. And that's important. My sense is that the election narrative often, often takes on a totally different issue than, than the one that the campaign actually emphasized. That might be harder in, in an era of more nationalized congressional elections and in an era in which, in which ads go viral. And so sort of like everyone has seen all the ads from all around the country. And it's so clear, at least to people who are thinking about this stuff, it's so clear that 
that Democratic candidates emphasized health care. I think that if they, you know, if they didn't take that up, that would probably that would probably end badly for them. I do think from a policy perspective, you know, we're looking at a split chamber and divided government under those conditions. We're probably not looking at a terrifically policy productive period. And the stuff that will be, you know, that will be on the agenda will be stuff that can fly under the partisan radar. So it would be surprising to me if there was a real shift on healthcare, but, you know, but maybe. Even though everyone is looking ahead to 2020, midterm elections do not usually tell us much about the next nominee. I think it's really telling that after 20, so 2010, you have this Tea Party movement that helps bring bring the Republicans to majority in the House and also takes down, you know, like takes down incumbents and takes down like longtime politicians. And nevertheless, you know, in 2012, the Republicans nominate Mitt Romney. You know, not I wouldn't say a terribly good example of a mobilizing candidate. And there's other people that they maybe could have recruited for that, but they don't. And you see that in 2012 and you see a similar dynamic, you know, from 94 to 96, where maybe you want kind of new conservative firebrand, but instead it's like, it's Bob Dole, right? Same, same Bob Dole from 20 years ago. So I think in some ways parties are really, I'm writing about this right now, like parties are kind of intrinsically conservative institutions. They're risk averse. Their coalitions don't move very fast. Meanwhile, Rachel Bittekoffer has been trying to predict the 2020 elections with her own race ratings and model based on turnout surges from negative partisanship. My model is completely different. What I'm doing in my model is I'm looking at each district and I'm using a couple of key variables. It's very parsimonious. Partisan voter index, the rate of college education, the diversity and the urbanicity of the district. And using that to get an estimated, you know, Y hat for for Democratic Party, two-party vote share. And then I used that to isolate districts that would be most vulnerable to a surge of Democratic voter turnout, which under my theory of negative partisanship, I mean, that's what my model is called, the negative partisanship model. We were going to see a new electorate emerge, especially in suburban areas with high concentrations of college-educated voters wanted to anticipate which ones would be competitive. And in my post-op, which is, you know, should be up now, it will show just, you know, when we started off on July 1st, I had isolated, you know, 20 or 30 districts that really had a high probability of producing a turnout surge for Democrats. And the other handicappers and forecast, July 38 wasn't out yet, but there was a new, uh, new kid on the block, uh, uh, the cross tab done by Elliot Morris that had um, probabilities for districts. And they they were still debating, can they make it to 23? And I was coming out and saying, no, 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 it's probably going to be close to 40, if not more. And the reason why I was, I, was, I was able to account for that, what was going to happen in that composition, the demographic composition of the electorate via my model. She was inspired by thinking the other models were too timid after 2016. What inspired me, I think, was coming out of the November election with with the upset for Clinton. I I, I just kind of expected, I thought, like the the political class to start talking about Democrats being fired up and just kind of assume this wave was going to be coming. And and then I instead I saw that people were very tepid about it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that people were too bold, maybe, about Clinton's prospects. And, and, you know, the classic human response to something like that is to take it way, way to the other side. Through the 2017, I'm in Virginia. I do polling here in Virginia. Through the 2017 cycle, um, I 
found that when I was doing analysis or a media events or whatever, I was the only one saying, yeah, no, 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 this is this this is going to be the Democrat pretty handily, you know, everyone else is like, no, no, it always ends up close. And I was like, yeah, but what we don't appreciate, I think, is that this data journalism era that has brought like the you know lay person, the political lay, lay junkie into the process is really grounded in the last eight years. And because of that, the assumptions that it operates on is assumptions that were built under the Obama presidency. And, you know, given that we both study political polarization and I think probably have a special insight to just how much American politics has changed over the last couple of decades. And uh, it just just seemed obvious to me that polarization was going to have a massive effect on these midterms and on last year's Virginia elections. And so when nobody else was was doing that lane, I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. So. Bittekoffer uses mostly quantitative data, but does add some qualitative ratings of candidate strength. I added a qualitative element, just like 538 does. They have their initial aggregate model on generic ballot and what have you, and then they add in data for polling. I don't use polling, but they use polling and fundraising and candidate quality and things like that to make ultimate judgments. That required because there were there were cases like like Virginia 7th, I think, is a great example of this. In the case of Virginia 7, that was something that no one else had listed as will flip to Democrats on July 1. And I, I was very bullish on that district, partially because of the changing northern end of the district, which is a growing suburb of Richmond, which is, you know, a very uh, Democratic, strong Democratic stronghold here in Virginia. And not only that, though, so there's that potential for that suburban surge from, um, you know, not just white college educated women, but college educated voters in general. But what made that district enough to get it over the top, because my two party vote share, you know, I can't remember for for sure, but it was probably like 47 percent. And that's obviously not 50, right? So what pushed, what maybe handicap it as a will flip was the candidate. The Democratic nominee was superb. She was immensely politically talented, and it was clear that she was going to be a contender. Going through two Democrats, I mean, they were raising more than a million dollars in like more than 60 districts. It's just an astounding data point that you don't normally see in these House elections. Another person that I qualitatively pushed my, you know, beyond my model for was Beto O'Rourke. Texas, uh, as a competitive state, was one of the things I got the most pushback for when I released on July 1, because I said, oh, and by the way, Texas is going to be a toss-up. Yes, Texas. And, uh, you know, even people that really liked what I did, like Larry Sabato, were like, oh, I like what you did, but Texas? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I never said it was going to flip, but I said it was going to get within that, you know, high 40 range and be competitive. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened. So uh, I don't know exactly how I'm going to handle the qualitative aspect when I p- go for academic published publication, because the role model was great on the seat chair, right? But, you know, I think it's an important element. She was one of the few to foresee that Democrats might not need a huge national vote share to pick up major gains in House seats. Because it's based on this concept of, the, of what Democratic limitation was in the suburbs. I, the whole time with the analyses that were coming out about, oh, they need to be at 14 points to get 30 seats, you know, I, I was not 
I wasn't buying it. And the reason why is that, yes, Democratic voters are concentrated in these metro areas and there's that structural disadvantage and, of course, the gerrymandering on top. But the basis of that assumes a certain level of competition between the parties and the suburbs. And what I was arguing fundamentally, and I think this is a key point that separates me from other people, I mean, not just in the forecasting community, but probably almost everybody in the analyst community, is that I'm not arguing Democrats had a a banner day because they went out there and swayed Republican soccer moms over from the Republican Party because they're uncomfortable with Trump, though I'm sure there are some cases that fit that description. What I'm arguing that's driving the change is latent Democrats, women primarily, who didn't vote or maybe voted only casually and were, you know, really given a wake up call, I think, in November on that election when Trump won and and the last two years underneath his leadership and, and they're agitated. So I said, you know, these latent Democrats that sit out these off year elections, now they're running around forming grassroots organizing groups and She says elections have changed in an era of negative partisanship and polarization. What my theory is arguing is that not only can we explain this election, we can explain the last two, even the last four, all the way back to 2006, really, where polarization finally starts to peak up in the public. And, you know, Mo Fiorina's famous book, Culture War, you know, purports to say, hey, look, Americans are totally fine. (laughs) Well, the data set that he's using for that is just when the public starts to kind of lose their mind. And and my dissertation looked at that too. And so you see this big change in the public and in elites coming after 2006. And that's when we start to see these like Jekyll and Hyde outcomes. So, um, you know, as I move forward to the academic book version of this, it's gonna be looking backwards at this uh, idea of negative partisanship and who is motivated and demobilized by it. And then in terms of 2020, And 2019 here in Virginia, because I live in the best place on earth, it's always election year. My model is going to be used to predict the outcome of next year's state legislative races and the 2020 presidential election. And then beyond that, assuming we get a a seat change in Washington, I would expect the negative partisanship variable will be helping Republicans and hurting Democrats. So I think this is a new way of thinking about voting behavior. It pushes back at some of the most longstanding assumptions about how people behave electorally. It really pushes heavily back on the idea that we have a persuadable electorate, um, but, you know, that, that these midterm effects are you know, just purely a product of independence moving. I mean, definitely independence move in midterm effects, but I think what's understudied and undervalued is the base, the ferocity of the base. Bittercoffer did miss a couple of races because it's hard to gauge qualitative differences in candidates. My model did really, really well, especially at picking out districts that were not on other people's radar, even up to Election Day. But there are two districts that I got wrong. Kentucky 6 is one of them. Kentucky 6 is a district with a history of flipping back and forth. Amy McGrath ran a great campaign. She raised like $6 million and the party and committees were giving her support. So I anticipated they must be seeing something on the ground there that you know gave them a good sense that she could win. And then she ultimately didn't even come close to winning that. So that, and I've had that district as will flip from day one, July one. So that's obviously um, a major blow call for me. And then the other one is Virginia second. And in Virginia second, 
I was a victim of my own knowledge. I can, am connected to that district, so I know a lot of the people involved on both sides. And I let that cloud my judgment. So my model had it as a very likely Democratic pickup, and I qualitatively overrode it to um, push it lean Republican based on not only other people's survey data, but mine, which I trust a lot more. You know, I, I uh, very few polls, but what I do is high quality. And, and it showed Scott Taylor up by uh, outside of the margin of the era. So I just I missed that one. <laughs> she also saw the Senate races not going Democrats way for the same basic reasons. I said, look, Democrats are facing a hostile map and the evidence of the blue wave and negative partisanship is going to be primarily viewable in things that don't happen. And by that, I mean the Midwest not being the battleground. Those states were written off and seemed very obvious to be um, either Democratic pickups or safe Democratic seats pretty early on. and, and, And the battleground instead moved to places that it should not be in Georgia. Texas, Arizona, right? fact that Arizona and Nevada went to the Democrats, I anticipated based on the level of diversity, tendency of those, uh, especially of Nevada, to kind of break late for Democrats. But yeah, the Senate map, everybody was guessing. Everybody. There was nobody who had a good forecast for that. And I think ultimately... The state level PVI scores that I created for my forecast ended up being extremely predictive. I just followed the Cook methodology to create those PVI scores for the states and in doing so found that North Dakota, for instance, had a 14, a R plus 14 PVI score. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, there's no way Heitkamp is going to be able to overcome that you know, no matter how much incumbency helps or no matter how much negative partisanship helps because there's no urban, suburban, there's not a really large urban or suburban population for her to get a surge out of. Uh, And then Tennessee, everyone was, oh, you know, this is going to be competitive. And the reason they think it's competitive is they think that Republicans could break and vote for Bredesen because it happened before or while the Southern realignment was still in progress. But that state, too, had a Republican score of 14 points. And I just I just knew that wasn't going to be overcome. And I think the exit poll data bears this out. I mean, when we look through the exit poll data, it's the only person there's three people in the country that are able to get votes from the other party in a significant way. That's Joe Manchin in West Virginia and uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland and the governor of Massachusetts. Those are the three states that have like a long history of doing that. She's bullish on Democrats for 2020, pointing to their strength in the Midwest. I think we can't understate the importance of Scott Walker's loss in Wisconsin. Scott Walker survived the recall, two elections, you know. You know, the fact that he lost an off year, a midterm cycle is a real testament to how riled up Democratic voters are, even though it was a close loss, he still lost. And then the fact that Ohio Senate, Michigan Senate, Pennsylvania Senate, those races were not competitive. And that didn't surprise me at all. And it doesn't, I think the, the blue wall for me in 2020, based on my model, is, is looking pretty solid for Democrats, assuming that they don't come out of the nomination process too, too disadvantaged in that area. <laughs> I think there's many candidates that will be fine in the Midwest, and maybe there's a couple that would make it a little bit harder. But the Midwest, the reason why I am much more bullish on the Midwest for Democrats than other analysts is because I wrote a book on the 2016 election, and in it I show that actually 
you know, the Midwest, this idea that like the Midwest was like, oh, Trump, populism, we like him. We're going to, you know, cross over and, and jump ship. And I do know that there's, you know, people that did that. There are Obama Trump voters for sure. But when you look at the actual electoral results in those states, the story of what happened there is pretty obvious. And what happened was white, idealistic, mostly millennial young people who were Sanders supporters in the primary either sat out or voted a protest ballot. And in Wisconsin, which was uh, less than 1% between Clinton and Trump, Wisconsin's normal two-party defection rate, so uh, people who vote but don't vote for one of the two-party nominees, is about 1.5%. And that's and that's pretty standard across the country with some exceptions like Idaho, which tend to like um, third-party candidates more. But 1.5%. In 2016, it was 6.5%. <laughs> Okay. And that's true across the entire Midwest. And, you know, in my analysis, I show the main predictor of defection of a high defection rate is being a Sanders primary state. Uh, there's no relationship like that for Trump states versus Cruz states or what have you. Product of Democrats becoming complacent because they were in power and they didn't have the threat of Republican policy and Republican governance. Asari says the lesson was that candidates getting national energy are not necessarily those that sell well to swing voters. The quiet people won and the charismatic people lost. That's one of my other takeaways in terms of Democratic challengers against Republican incumbents. You had Jackie Rosen, the computer programmer, Tony Evers here in Wisconsin, former science teacher. And these were not the people that made the viral ads. The people that got a lot more national attention and were kind of more telegenic than Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum and Beto O'Rourke did not fare as well. Um, I know some of those races are not resolved exactly, but you know, that to me, that would seem like a sensible narrative coming out of coming out of 2018, but it's not clear that that's, that that will be the direction the party will go either. I think that'll, that'll much more reflect internal coalition dynamics rather than the, the 2018 narrative. But she warns us not to oversell any stories. We always seem to need a cleaner narrative than we get. What's really important here is how much we need a narrative. You know, elections solve certain kinds of problems. They install people in power. This election has, has as I said, it sort of shifted the power dynamic to more closely reflect the, the partisan landscape of the country. It's put in a number of new faces and in, in power with new ideas, people who bring new new demographics. It's shifted, again, some Senate seats probably closer to the demographics and preferences of their states. Those are all kind of real and concrete outcomes. Why we need a narrative so badly is, you know, really tells us more than any election ever, any election returns ever could. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Julia Azari and Rachel Bittekoffer for joining me. Please check out their books, Delivering the People's Message and the Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election. Then join us next time.